are Paul Jones and his army, Shaska Watley, T.J. O'Conn, Baron Von Reschke. You know, very brief, I want to say, you know, Jimmy Valiant made a statement. He says, if Paul Jones is not a ball-headed geek, before the year is up, he's going to quit. Well, let me tell you something. All that did was make us put our nose to the grindstone. The army came to me and he said, Paul, don't worry because we're buckling down and we're going to do it. In order to train for this, what we're going to do is make a tour through the central United States and we're going to leave ball-headed geeks everywhere we go. And believe me, that is our new goal, to leave every opponent as a ball-headed geek. And Jimmy Valiant, I want you to look fast and He's got something to say to you. Welcome once again, wrestling fans, to another edition of Classic Wrestling Memories. We're going up on volume 19 right now, and like our last episode from actually just a couple days ago, we are paying tribute to another wrestling legend that has passed away. Fortunately, uh, in this case, kind of the silver lining is that it was not a premature death. It seems to happen all too often in wrestling, but we are talking the life and the career of the late, great, number one Paul Jones, who you just heard from his heel manager days. And he had a long career, both as a wrestler and as a manager. And we are going to talk about the man and his career. Unfortunately, I don't have to do it alone. Once again, joining me from a nice padded cell in South Kakalaki, Crazy Train, Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, this is kind of a heavy-hearted episode for me. Uh, Paul Jones was a huge star here in the Carolinas when I became a fan and He's on that list of guys that I watched growing up that made me want to be a pro wrestler. Um, and he is one of those guys I got to meet uh, in my career. So um, not did not was, uh, was not close to Paul, but definitely had a, a more direct impact on me than some of the other guys we talk about. And I'll do respect to their greatness and contributions to the wrestling business. And I think it can be said he was one of those guys that was both babyface and heel throughout his career. I mean, he was he was a heel as a wrestler he was a babyface as a wrestler now his manager career uh correct me if i'm wrong he was a heel pretty much through the entirety of his managerial career correct oh yeah i don't think there are many babyface managers period i mean paul ellering and, and arnold scolan are about the only two guys i can think of that were you know career babyface managers mm-hmm. but i guess we'll start at the beginning uh paul jones was born on june 16th 1942 in port arthur texas and actually was an accomplished boxer growing up he had seven years as a golden gloves boxer so he was a legit tough guy growing up yeah and, and i think you'll you'll see that uh you've seen it before in other episodes a lot of the guys that we talk about here on classic wrestling memories that was just the way it was back in the day you had to have some legitimate toughness to make it in the business because kayfabe was there fans were true believers um and guys like to go into business for themselves so a lot of the guys you'll see we're not unlike Paul. They had a, a boxing background or a legitimate wrestling background or had been football players or were just legit tough guys like a Harley Race uh, you know, archetype. So he's not that, dis- not that dissimilar from most territorial guys at the time. Now, I, in my research, did not find anything as far as what inspired him to get into wrestling, but as far as getting trained, uh, he got trained by Paul Bosch himself, who obviously was a very successful uh, promoter does it really get more legit than getting trained by Paul Bosch? 
No. I mean, Paul Bosch was one of those stars of wrestling as an in-ring competitor before, you know, the television days and then trans, you know, transitioned into legitimately one of the most powerful and important uh, promoters in the early days of the NWA. Had a lot of pull and a lot of respect. And this was, of course, down in Texas. Houston, to be exact. Exactly. And Paul Jones first competed for big-time wrestling, which would eventually become world-class championship wrestling and then eventually the USWA. I mean, do I have my facts correct there? Right. That, that's right. You're gonna, we need to do a whole episode on Texas wrestling and how it was eventually, essentially one territory that morphed into five before the territories died, but that was when it was still just one. You're correct. Uh, he did win the big-time television championship in, uh, in in Texas. I don't see any other accolades as far as uh, what he won in Texas. But then again, that that was his very early years. I, yeah, I think I mean, really what can be credited as his uh, next step, where he really got somewhat of a push uh, on a, on a big big stage, would have been his first run in Mid Atlantic Championship wrestling. This would have been. Uh, late 60s, maybe late 60s, early early 70s. And this would have been under Big Jim, right? Yes. And this would have been pre-George Scott. So this is the time frame we've talked about many times when this this here in the Mid-Atlantic Territory was a tag team territory. Your biggest stars were George Becker and Johnny Weaver, who were the top babyface tag team. And people that are still with us, and there aren't many in this part of the world, still talk about that tag team as though they were, you know, Greek gods coming down from Mount Olympus. So, yeah. And, and I think his early career in here in Mid-Atlantic was reflected that. He was in a lot of tag teams when he first came here in, in that time period. Mm-hmm. And Johnny Weaver, I mean, he gave us the, the sleeper hold, so. The Weaver Lock is the yes. American dream, we call it. <laughs> yeah. uh, so getting back to Paul Jones, he did win the NWA Atlantic Coast Tag Team Championship with Nelson Royal, who's Another name who was in a lot of tag teams, if I recall correctly. Yeah, Nelson was a junior heavyweight, former junior, you know, junior heavyweight world champion. Feuded with um, Danny Hodge, who, in my opinion, pound for pound, was probably the greatest wrestler of all, pure wrestler of all time. Jim Ross um, agrees with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, he 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 kind of he kind of mentored Jim, so I understand that. But um, Nelson, another guy, legendary in this area, did the, the British William Regal type gimmick originally, thus the name but then morphed into a cowboy gimmick, believe it or not. And um, Nelson's another one of those guys that people around here remember as a legit tough guy. He was not a big guy, obviously, uh, because he was a junior heavyweight. But I've heard stories of him jacking up guys like, you know, twice his size against the locker in, in, the, in the locker room when they got out of control and didn't want to do business. I would think with his boxing, Paul's boxing background and Nelson's shooting background, that would not be a team I would try to go into business with myself against. <laughs> you might pay the price. <laughs> Especially to give you an idea, the team that they won that Atlantic Coast Tag Team Championship from was the original Minnesota Wrecking Crew of Lars and Gene Anderson. Oh, yeah. And, of course, the Andersons also legendary in this area. Whichever incarnation, you know, Lars, Gene, Ole, Arn, it doesn't matter. Take any four of them, throw them together. They were hated heels here in the Carolinas. And then from there, he got his first major heel run uh, going down to Florida under Eddie Graham. And this, I believe, is where he first took the number one moniker. Am I correct? I think that's right. I think Eddie gave it to him. And I think, you know, I know I can't verify this, but my, my gut feeling tells me that um, – you're talking around the time that George Scott comes in and takes over and decides, hey, we're going to transition Mid-Atlantic from tag team to singles. They knew he was over. They knew that he could work. 
We're talking about Paul, of course. Let's send him down, down, you know, get him out of the, get him away from the fans. Let him run, do a heel run so we, we can see if he can do that and then bring him back. I, I don't know that, but that was pretty common in that time period, you know? Yeah. The logic is sound. Mm. So, I mean, and then he, then he wound up coming back to the Carolinas after what, about two years, I think? Sounds about right. Yeah. 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 72 to 74, he was in Florida. And in that amount of time, he did win the NWA Florida Heavyweight Championship, which I believe was the top title for that territory. I could be wrong. At that time, it probably was. At uh, the end of the days of that, I mean, it was the Southern title. But, you know, six, six, one half dozen of another, right? <laughs> right. But to give you an idea of some of the other talent that had held that title, we're talking Terry Funk, Dory Funk Jr., Rocky Johnson, Tim Woods, Ernie Ladd, Barry Windham, Mike Rotunda, Ron Simmons, the White Ninja, a.k.a. Uh, K.G. Muto, the Great Muta. Uh, how many names did I just say there that are Hall of Famers? And uh, Every one of them. <laughs> yeah, and the ones that aren't will be one day. I mean, let's face it, Mike Rotunda is going in one day. He may go in as IRS, but he's going in one day. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, the, we, we've talked about when we talked about um, the Florida territory during Dusty's run, that was like the Carolinas – they were crown jewels of the NWA. They only had the best of the best. So if Paul goes down there being sent by, you know, the Crockett's to for a heel run and then gets title runs like that, that should tell you what the thoughts of the NWA promoters was of him as a wrestler. Right. Absolutely. Especially since as a heel at the same time for it was for a short time, but it was for a time. He held the Florida heavyweight championship, the NWA Florida TV championship, and the NWA Florida Brass Knuckles Championship all at the same time. He held three belts in the same territory at the same time. Yeah. And you'll hear that term a lot on the show, uh, Brass Knuckles Championship. A lot of the territories had a Brass Knuckles title. That was hardcore before hardcore existed. What it was was the, the stipulations in those matches were, you know, no rules, come as you are. Now, did they actually wear Brass Knuckles? No, no. But the, some of the belts, I know like the Texas version had a actual brass picture of brass knuckles on the faceplate. Um, a lot of the guys would tape their fists up, though. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's if, if you go back and watch any old hardcore matches, they look more like a, what we would call a street fight nowadays. You that's, know? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. It, it was explained to me before that it was more of a not literal brass knuckles, but more like a what, what we would call a street fight. Right, and it was where that term "the lights out" came from. Uh, you hear that term a lot in old wrestling. The reason why was to get across to the fans that this was legitimately a a tough match. Uh, it wasn't going to be sanctioned. And the rules would state from the athletic commissions that once the lights went out in a building, the mat that you know, the, the the matches were over. So they would briefly turn the house lights on, turn them back on, and that was to signify this match is not sanctioned. Of course, brass knuckles matches were sanctioned when it was a title, but you get my point, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if it's just a grudge match, that's when they do the lights out stuff. Right, right. And and the thing of it is, a hardcore match in that time frame, it wasn't the tables and ladders and chairs and guys lighting their hair on fire and doing 450s off the roof of the building. It was just a street fight. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were going to be there were going to be toys involved. They were going to get chairs and, you know, tables and stuff like that, but it wasn't going to be the the stunt show you see nowadays. It was going to be a street fight. Right. Yeah, they might they might brawl through the crowd. They might brawl up the aisle or something like that. You know, smash each other right. against the wall. And there was going to be blood, without question. <laughs> that was very much a part of wrestling in that era. 
So after that run in Florida, Paul goes back up to Mid-Atlantic, and this is after Big Jim's passing. I want to say it's a 74 or 75, so Jim Jr. would have taken over the territory by now, right? Right, and this is when, like I said, right, 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 right after George Scott had come in and took it over the book. And this would arguably be, I think, his most memorable run, at least as far as the history books go, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you were, if you buy and look at the history books, think 72 to about 78 in the Carolinas, a lot was going on. And to be a top player in this territory at that time, you're, you're going to always be remembered because one of the biggest events in that time frame is the infamous plane crash uh, with, you know, with Flair and Valentine and Bob Bruggers. And that would lead to, you know, one of the biggest moments for, I think, in Paul Jones' career, um, where when Paul was brought back in, he was immediately placed as a top babyface, you know, as a returning hero. And at, since Johnny Valentine was being built as the top heel and had that U.S. title, which was the top title here in the Mid-Atlantic Territory, Paul was one of his uh, constant you know, uh, opponents, was kind of in a feud with him. So when Johnny was in the plane wreck and was no longer to, able to compete, uh, they decided to hold a tournament for the title, which was held on, uh, you have the numbers, I think it's November 9th, 1975, is that right? Seth? S- sounds about right. It was right after the plane crash, because if I recall correctly, if my research does me well, uh, he had actually beaten Johnny for the title, but then was stripped of it like the following right. week. It was controversial. controversial. I, I, I remember having a, a talk with Mike Mooneyham about that angle at one point years ago. So, yeah. So to establish Paul when he comes back from Florida, George Scott puts him you know, in this position to be a top guy. To establish him in the fans' eyes, he does this title change that actually it's it's essentially it was a dusty finish before a dusty finish existed. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about that that finish existed. It's just dusty got tied to it, so it was kind of unfair to call it a dusty finish. Uh, but anyway, it, it established him, and then the plane wreck happens, and they have this tournament, and uh, it went. I think all the guys wrestled like four or five times, a big like all night tournament. Right, right. It, right. it was a one night tournament, and I believe you were right. It was November ninth, uh, nineteen seventy five. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those to help out the territory. Jim Crockett Jr. went to Sam Muchnick, who was, of course, the president of the NWA at the time, said, I need help. And they got top stars from all over the country and all these other territories. And the finals wound up being Terry Funk and Paul Jones, to which Terry beat beat Paul in the finals for the title. Um, you know, you need so I'm, I'm sitting here thinking if I'm a booker and I'm trying to replace the heel heat Johnny Valentine could create, Terry Funk's a pretty good replacement, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. This this would be not dissimilar, I would think, to what uh, we were talking about with the with, on the Bruno tribute. This is a transitional champion. Terry was brought in to be the transitional champion to fill the spot for Johnny because a couple weeks later, Paul wound up beating Terry for that that title he had lost in the finals of, of the tournament. Right, and and I think from a, a Booker's logic and from a storytelling logic, especially when you consider the territories. I mean, we we talked about the philosophies of different territories before, and especially uh, the last episode about Bruno, about how most of the territories dealt with the heel champion and the babyface having the uphill climb to slay the dragon, whereas the McMahons, their champion was their dragon slayer, and they, you know, we just had a different dragon every month. So right. it makes sense from that territorial standpoint, uh, or, you know, dare I say, southern uh, mentality, that... No, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, we had the dominant heel champion in Johnny Valentine, and he unfortunately was, uh, you know, injured career career ending injury. You know, he never walked again after that. Uh, so they created a new dragon 
in Terry Funk, and of course he beats the hero, and then the hero has to rally back and slay the dragon again. So uh, I and really have no I, problem with just looking at it on paper. I have no problem with a with you know, with an outcome like that. And of course, from a business standpoint, they save the they save the title change to Paul to the Greensboro Coliseum, which we've talked about before. When we've talked about Mid Atlantic was the biggest building in the in the territory. You draw the biggest house there. Right. That, that's uh, so, where yeah. that, that's where the uh, first couple starcades were. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So you know, it's it's sound booking, and it shows you how far Paul has come from the time he started in Texas to now. He's the top babyface and top champion in one of the biggest territories in the NWA, you know? And also during that run, uh, around 74, 75, uh, Paul Jones and Wahoo McDaniel uh, defeated the Andersons. I'm assuming this is still Gene and Lars. Maybe Ole might have come along at this time by oh, 75. Ole might. I think Ole might have come along by then. I can't I get kind of sketchy of when that changed happened, you know? Because um, Lars was the oldest, right? Yes, yes. And and I think Lars just got burned out with the business and left. I'd have to double check on that. You know, it wasn't like he got injury or anything made him retire. He just got burned out and went home, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it, it's once again, you said, well, Wahoo. Remember, Wahoo was the other main baby face that was feuding with Johnny Valentine at that point. If if, if Wahoo was probably the top baby face of the territory at the time, Paul Jones was number two. It, it would be, um, you know, to use a modern analogy, it would be Rock Austin. You know? Right, right, or or maybe a current analogy, maybe like a John Cena, Daniel Bryan type thing. Exactly, that, good, that's a good analogy. It's a very good analogy. With, with Wahoo it's being that. Cena and Paul Jones being Daniel Bryan. Exactly, exactly. Just on size alone, <laughs> mm-hmm. and so for them to tag together makes sense, you know. And the Andersons were, you know, the other top heels in the territory after Valentine. So yeah, because you got to remember at the same time we're talking about, there's this young upstart guy with bleach blonde hair running around who, who's calling himself the Nature Boy who's recovering from this plane wreck. So there's a lot of moving parts going on in Mid-Atlantic at the time, you know? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if this match exists uh, on, on tape, but if it does, I really want to see it. Uh, the mm-hmm. Andersons, according to Wikipedia, regained the championship the next month in a televised rematch known as the Supreme Sacrifice Match, which saw Ole Anderson ram his brother Gene's head into McDaniel's head with enough force to knock both men unconscious, enabling Ole Anderson to pin McDaniel. That sounds yes. like a hell of a finish. <laughs> Let me tell you, that was a, not to get off from Paul Jones because the show is a tribute to him. That was a finish that the Andersons used all the time to great efficiency. Okay, they they would they they would recycle that finish ten years later, leading into the first Starcade. <laughs> <laughs> they would some of the earliest some of that stuff that's, that just recently got put on the network that's Mid Atlantic from like eighty two at the beginning of Jake the Snake's run. Right, you'll see the you'll see the run of them doing the same angle then because Gene, uh, I don't believe Gene had Tourette's. But he had some kind of disorder there where he he, he kind of had a little shake in his head. He blinked a lot. And so that they would just do that and say that that was the outcome of Ole doing the, that finish, you know. And, right. and, he, and, he, and Ole was the talker of the team. So when Gene would talk, he would do a stutter and it would, it would just really to sell this idea. But, you know, what a fantastic finish, right? Right. And nobody gets hurt. Imagine that. Wow. Right. But getting back to the U.S. title, as some of our listeners probably know, and certainly anybody that uh, ardently follows title lineage, the NWA United States Heavyweight Championship, the Mid-Atlantic version, that is the title that eventually morphed into the WWE U.S. title. So if you look at the official U.S. title lineage for WWE, you're going to see Paul Jones's name there. Mm-hmm. Along with names like Wahoo McDaniel and Ric Flair 
and Ricky Steamboat and Magnum TA and Nikita Koloff and Sting Blackjack, and Lex Blackjack Logan, Mulligan. Blackjack Mulligan, John Cena, JBL, Eddie Guerrero. I mean, it's literally a who's who's list of people that have held that title. Mm-hmm. And, and again, how many of those names did we just say that are Hall of Famers? If they're not in, they're going to go in at some point. Right, exactly. Yeah. Now, again, 1975 brings us to another big point in Paul Jones's career. In 1975, which is one of my favorite years, uh, go figure. <laughs> well, <laughs> Anybody well, that knows I me wonder, knows why. <laughs> I, wonder, I was going to say, I wonder why, Seth. <laughs> <laughs> but Paul Jones began teaming with a young Ricky Steamboat. Obviously, this is well before the Dragon gimmick. Right. But they held the Mid-Atlantic NWA World Tag Team Championship, which again is the title that would eventually become the NWA World Tag Team Championship. Mm-hmm. And they also had the just the Mid-Atlantic Tag Team Championships. I, sh- I shouldn't denigrate the titles by just saying just the Mid-Atlantic Tag Team, but they <laughs> they were the World Tag Team Champions, and they were also the, the Territorial Tag Team Champions as well. Right, right, right. Every Almost every territory had their own version of the World Tag Team title than a secondary tag team title underneath that. It's just that because Crockett gained so much power, theirs is the one that became to be recognized as the true world tag team champion, which makes sense if you understand the history of the territory, you know, right. and it's tag team history. I, say. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you're talking tag teams like a Wahoo McDaniel and Paul Jones, like a Ricky Steamboat and Paul Jones, a Anderson's, uh, you know, that's the that's that's a flair and Greg Valentine. That's the kind of t- people we're talking about that held that title. It's it has pretty solid base and foundation. Right, right. Absolutely. But they tagged for quite a few years, about four years, mm-hmm. and I don't have an exact date. Uh, let me let me double check here while I'm thinking about it. I do remember that that team. I mean, that, that was right before we moved back to the Carolinas. But when I got into wrestling really heavily in the early '80s, some of my friends that were older that were also wrestling fans, and I would see at the at the matches on Monday nights. That was one of their favorite tag teams. They remember that tag team fondly of Steamboat and and Paul Jones. You know. So they had quite an impact. Yeah, and, and, and it's easy to see why. I mean, you know, I say this as a completely straight, uh, red-blooded male, but, you know, they were both good-looking guys. You know, they, right. they both could go in the ring. You know, they, they could both mm-hmm. put on that smile and wave to the camera and all that. So Right, right, you know, exactly. They, they were white meat baby faces. Sure. It doesn't hurt when you're, when, you're, when you're beating up Ric Flair and the Andersons either. That kind of makes you popular, too. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Getting back to... Uh, the, the the breakup and uh, somewhere sometime in 1979, I wasn't able to track down an exact date. There was a battle royal, and it sounds like Steamboat won. Uh, I'm not uh-huh. sure about that, but Paul Jones basically attacked Ricky Steamboat after that, essentially ending the the tag team with Jones turning heel. And I think mm-hmm. at this point, from '79 on, uh, Paul Jones was basically a heel for the, re- the remainder of his career, right? Except for maybe a few it, spots here and there. Right. That's 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 very true. That's very well. There was a there was a there was a brief cup of coffee in the early eighties uh, where he was a um, he did turn babyface for a while. When I started watching again in like eighty eighty one, you know, when I really started getting into wrestling, I remember uh, a babyface super mass superstar, which of course is Bill Eady, who would you know be uh, Axe and Demolition is probably how a lot of our listeners remember him. But before he was Axe, he was you know hit a Hall of Fame career as the mass superstar as a singles guy. And he was, a, he, he was brought in as a baby face, the territory and Paul turned baby face for a while and tagged with him. And for a significant chunk of time in crazy trains, fandom as a wrestling fan, his favorite tag team was Paul Jones and the mass superstar. I, I loved them. They were great. 
and they feuded with the Andersons over those Mid-Atlantic World Tag Team titles you're talking about. This is, I'd say, 81, 82, somewhere in there. Well, let me ask you this about Paul Jones, since I, I really don't know that much of his in-ring work personally. I think I've seen uh-huh. a few clips here and there. Obviously, we're going to get to where I'm most familiar with him in a, in a minute, which is, of course, Paul Jones' right. army. But mm-hmm. uh, could, could he hoss fight? Uh, no, he was too small. Yeah, that, that's small. what I thought. He was only about uh, five nine, five ten, but a solid two twenty. You know what I'm saying? Kind of barrel chested for his right. height. Okay. Uh, what I what I loved about Paul was he was a technical wrestler. Go figure. He tagged with Steamboat all those years, right? Right. And he did that old style of chain wrestling that was popular in the '60s. And I loved his finisher. One of my favorite finishers of all time that nobody uses anymore: the Indian Deathlock. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you about that. As far so, uh, before I forget. Because uh, almost nobody uses it. I think I've seen Triple H use it before. But I used it. I'm not trying to brag. <laughs> so how would you describe the Indian Deathlock? If I've seen it right, it's almost kind of like a standing figure four, right? Almost. And there's two ways to do it. You can do it with your legs or you can do it with your arms. But you're familiar with sitting Indian style from when you were in kindergarten, right? With your oh, legs yeah. crossed. Yeah. You essentially are grapevining your arm or your leg through somebody else's legs in that position. And then forcing, forcing. Does, do you follow the visual I'm trying to? Yeah, I, I think so. You, you basically force them into an Indian style and then kind of pretzel their legs after that. Exactly. And you're wrapping your leg around their legs or your arm around their legs as you're putting them in that position. And if it's done right, you don't feel anything. But if you twist the wrong way or the guy wants to crank, you feel like your knee's going to pop out of socket. One of those type holds, which right. a lot of the old school wrestling holds are like that. If you fight it, it, it it's, it's that's why part of the reason the term hooker comes you know the, the harder a fish fights the more it gets gets caught in the hook so to speak same thing you get put in a, in a real legitimate hook hold the more you fight the, the deeper you're going to get hooked and indian death lock is one of those type holds but it's just nobody uses it anymore and it's one of the coolest looking moves you'll ever see you know it, it, it's like you said it's essentially a figure four looks like a figure four but you're standing you're not laying down with them you know mm-hmm and he tapped a lot of guys on TV that I watched as a kid with that hold. Yeah, it, it sounds like a hold like that. That's the type of thing. If you got a 300-pound brute down to the mat, you you do it right, and you could realistically mm. make a guy much bigger than you cry for his mama. Right, and that once again, psychology kind of goes out the window in current wrestling. For a smaller guy, it makes sense to do a move that takes out a guy's legs because it negates a big guy's power. You know, right. so he's sitting here thinking, you know, and I don't know if guys back then put that much thought into it like we do now, but I'm, I'm pretty sure at some point, you know, he'd been around 10 years. You figured, well, it makes sense psychologically for me to take out a guy's legs because of my size. And then it just morphed into, well, I'll just use this hold, you know, mm-hmm. but, but it's an reason- awesome move. Yeah, awesome but, move. But the reason I brought up hoss fighting is, you know, well, he was much smaller, but obviously Gene and Ole could hoss fight and I'm pretty sure Bill Eady could hoss fight. So yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing. Even with Paul's size, we talked about it. We've talked about it before. Paul had fire when he was a babyface. How does Ricky Morton be, be considered one of the greatest babyface of all time? And he's, what, 190 pounds soaking wet? It's all about the fire in your comeback. Paul had fire. And you would see that even more when, once he became a heel because he could turn it, that, that, that fire into evil intense. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. But absolutely. So, yeah when, so when Paul made his comeback, he was not dissimilar from any. Baby face that you think Lawler dropping the strap in Memphis, same thing. I'm feeling no pain, and then he could start trading, trading you know, old soup bones with anybody, you know, and and that's the key uh, from that era, and even up to today. And the guys, some of the guys haven't figured it out. 
that comeback shouldn't be wrestling spots. It should be a fight. Well, yeah, you you talk about you know Hogan doing you know just popping up after kicking out of a finisher. You're talking Sting beating his chest. You know, uh, a Stone lot of Cold, great baby faces. Rock. Yeah, you know they had they, they had their own way of making their comeback. Dusty do the butt shake, but he wouldn't do punches. He just do the elbow on the elbow. But it's the same thing. You're feeling no pain. You're firing up, and it, and and it, it, you know, you might you have to bleep this out, but the shit is getting ready to get real. That mm-hmm. that's the the vibe you're going for. It's baby face, and Paul could do that. So if that's what you mean by a hoss fight, yeah, Paul could do that. He'd get okay. that look. He'd get that thousand yard death stare and that look on his face, and he'd start throwing them soup bones. And you know, oh, okay, this this is real. This this ain't this ain't no wrestling no more. This is right. Right. So as a heel, uh, Paul Jones held tag team gold with Baron von Raschke. Uh, a heel mm-hmm. mass superstar, if I if I have my information correct, right? They 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 they, they did turn heel as a team. Broke 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 my heart. <laughs> yeah, I, I could imagine. I mean, I don't want to get too much off on a, on a tangent, but I remember watching WWF in the early '90s with uh, Tugboat, and Tugboat was my what little he, brother's favorite wrestler. And then they turned, he turned on heel. Hogan. Yeah, he yeah. Well, he turned on the Bushwhackers, I believe. Oh, okay. But uh, but yeah, and he just buried his. My brother just buried his head into his pillow and just started crying. Because <laughs> <So, laughs> he, I mean, he, he was in grade school at the time, so, you know. <laughs> right, yeah. And Tugboat was the one who was there by Hogan's side the whole time he was recovering from his injuries. I remember that angle. <laughs> right, right. Great angle. <laughs> it wasn't long after this, I think, is when he transitioned to the manager. I think that's what you were getting ready to bring up, wasn't it, Seth? Right, right. What I was going to say is his final feud in Crockett as a wrestler was with Jack, Jack Briscoe over the NWA Mid-Atlantic Heavyweight Championship. Right. And you got to remember the Briscoes, even though they were Florida-based, were huge baby faces here in the Carolinas, you know, um, both as singles and as tag teams. Jack as a heavyweight, Jerry as a junior heavyweight, and then, of course, the Briscoe Brothers tag team was second to none in this area as baby faces until they turned heel for Star K83, but I digress. Right. We already went over uh, <laughs> that, that that angle in... One of our early episodes, our very first episode, actually. Yeah, Mike Mooneyham talked about how they had to convince, and I've heard that before, they had to really, really convince uh, Crockett, please turn us heel. He's like, I'm not turning the Golden Goose heel. Are you kidding me? <laughs> but, you know, here comes Steamboat and, and, and Youngblood, and they had kind of had to for it to work, you know? Right. So now we get to the point where I'm most familiar with his work. Now, granted, I was not watching wrestling uh, live at the time, I I, th- I think I have a few vague memories of watching. I think it would have been on Channel sixty uh, around these mm-hmm. parts. But Paul Jones effectively retired from active competition and became a manager. And mm-hmm. this was yeah. the birth of the Paul Jones Army. Now, uh, Paul, Jones Paul Jones was never really a main event manager. He he was mid card. No. He certainly wasn't Bobby Heenan. He wasn't at the level of JJ or what what JJ would be in a couple of years. But mm-hmm. he did have several memorable programs during that manager run. Right, right. One of which you heard at the top of the program. You wanted to make Boogie Woogie Man Jimmy Valiant a bald-headed geek. You know, uh, but here, <laughs> here are some of the names that made up the Paul Jones Army stable. Once again, Mask Superstar, Superstar Billy Graham, Ivan Koloff, Rick Rude, Manny Fernandez, Abdullah the Butcher, The Powers of Pain, and there's a few others in there. I think Baron Von Raschke fits in there Baron somewhere Von as well. Raschke, Pistol Pez, Watley, T. Joe Kahn. Um, this is when I really, really started being a big-time wrestling fan. Uh, so this is what I was talking about at the top of the show, where he was an influence on me wanting to become a wrestler. Um, he kind of just floated around. And for a while there, I remember it was just Mass Superstar and Barbarian. A young, young Barbarian were his only you know, 
a, a client, so to speak. And I think Abdullah for a cup of coffee. And um, eventually they all left. and It was just him and the barbarian. And uh, Boogie Woogie Man Jimmy Valiant had been built up as essentially the, the, the second biggest baby face in the territory after, after Dusty. But then the ascension of Magnum TA kind of pushed Boogie down to number three in the babyface side. So Dusty and his booking decided to just square off Boogie against Paul Jones' army. Not that dissimilar from Bobby Heenan trying to take out Hogan no matter who his men were. You get the vibe I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right, and Boogie, and, and Boogie had just come off a feud with another great manager, Jim Cornette, and the Midnight Express. You know, uh, So he, you know, Boogie was hot. He just wasn't as hot as Dusty and Magnum. And uh, Boogie, being a single guy, because uh, Paul kept building up his army. He had added T. Joe Kahn at this point, Baron Von Raschke. Boogie was trying to find other men to help him out. And uh, two of the guys he had found were Manny Fernandez, the Raging Bull, and Pistol Pez Watley. And the, one of the most famous parts of this literally angle that ran for about four years was the top mid-card angle in the Crockett Promotions during their heyday involved Boogie doing a promo with Pistol Pez Watley mm-hmm. and calling him the greatest black wrestler alive to where Pez does this awesome, like, shocked look on yeah. his face. How Did dare you, you just say, say that? <laughs> and then just wallops him right in front of David Crockett. And then pull and just beats him down, puts the boots to him, and pulls a pair of scissors out of his back pocket. And David Crockett's like, stop it. And he just pushes David Crockett down and cuts mm-hmm. Boogie's boogie's uh ponytail off and then they did this angle for a couple weeks where a lot of baby faces are like what's wrong with you pez what's wrong with you do you if you need to talk to us you having problems man come to me and talk to me and then he shows up on uh you know the old superstation tbs the 605 show the other crockett show that was had the national overlay with uh, a, a top hat on and, and, a, and a tuxedo coat with a with tails and he's got the, the the ponytail in his pocket and he shows up with Paul Jones's army and Paul Jones explains I paid him off you know and and Pez and him would cut these great promos on how they were going to make J- Jimmy Valiant a bald headed geek and and sh- he changed his name to Shaska Watley because he was he was reconnecting with his African heritage as opposed to Pistol Pez and so there was a little bit of a racial overtone to it um, probably wouldn't fly today but you have to remember the the, the character of Boogie Woogie Man Jimmy Valiant was he was a street person you know he was he was from he was from the streets and, mm-hmm. and so he was he was a white guy that could relate to all the different ethnic and, and and racial groups and you know the black guy took exception to that now now Paul's got him in his army and it's you know so now it's Paul and maybe Manny Fernandez against these four monsters and um that was around the same time that the fans here just organically started calling Paul Jones Weasel. And you have to remember, I've heard a lot of people say, oh, you just copied that from from Bobby Heenan. Well, no, because Bobby had just come from Minneapolis to Vince, and yeah, he was doing the weasel gimmick up there, but we didn't get their television. We didn't know what that was. It was truly organic because Paul Paul Jones was a short guy. He had grown a mustache, and he kind of looked like a weasel. Right. And and, you know that morphed into when he cut that bald-headed geek promo that you played at the, the top of the episode. That also organically was picked up by the fans who would chant Paul bald-headed geek because Jimmy Valiant said, oh, no, no, I'm going to make you a bald-headed geek. So it doesn't, make, it doesn't take a genius to figure out where this, 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 this angle's headed. It's a whole lot of hair versus hair matches, you know? Right, right. <laughs> and I remember the first big one. I forget who 
Boogie was facing, but Boogie actually lost. And of course, he was screwed out of it. It was it was, it was a screw job. Paul and, Jones. Yeah, it was Paul Jones. It was against Paul himself. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think it was. It was either the Bash or Starcade of like of like eighty five or I, I think I think it was Bash of eighty five. I think it was right. It was Bash of eighty six. Yeah. And I think he got jumped. The ref took a bump, and I think I think uh, Shaska or or Barbarian came in, and you know, or no, they threw him nux, and he hit him with nux. That's what it was. And 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 or they did something where Jimmy got the nux, but then Paul got him away from him, and all that kind of thing. Uh, no, actually, I think originally even before that, let me step back a second, and I'm I'm, I'm going to pull this back from memory as a fan. It actually led to 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 Shaska Watley getting his head shaved first. So we as fans thought, well, this angle is over. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. They they did this great angle where uh, Paul Jones is part of his managerial. First, he came out. Let me let me say this. First, he he was wearing the you know the the terrible seventies tuxedos with the frilly thing, but he had like a cane. Mm-hmm. And after they had that, they did a great angle where they. He and I want to say it was Billy Graham before he, when he was in the army before he turned uh, babyface. They clothesline Boogie with the cane. Paul Jones, or maybe it was Barbarian, and and you know Boogie had cut those promos. Well, he came on TV for several weeks and he couldn't talk because he was selling the, the taking the the cane to the throat. It was awesome. Right, and and he'd have this chalkboard and he he yes! like write out what he wanted to say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and he would get all emotional. If you can be emotional and sell emotion, just riding with chalk, Boogie can do it. And this was around the same time as We We Are the World was a big hit. And I remember that's how he ended the promo, writing, We Are the World, We Are the People on the chalkboard. <laughs> it was, it was, Boogie Woogie, we've talked before, he was so awesome, man. He, he was so, couldn't, wasn't a technically great wrestler, but my God, he had charisma. and could cut a promo. And then, of course, Paul would cut these great promos back on him, you know, and, and, uh, you you're you're a big fan of Brian and Vinny. What is mm-hmm. what, what what does Brian always say about Paul Jones? Uh, I think it was something to the effect of he, he he was like hilariously awful to the point where he was awesome. Yes, I've heard Brian Alvarez talk at me how much he hated Paul Jones for years, but he's recently gone back and watched this stuff we're talking about uh, as it's been put on the network, and he realized how awesome Paul Jones was as a manager because there's just nobody like that anymore. They were right. Paul Jones was the epitome of the local territorial heel manager that the fans are like, I can't beat up that guy and that guy, but if I get my hands on that guy, <laughs> you know. <laughs> right. One of those promos where he's talking about making a bald-headed geek, somebody put up an altered photo that depicted Paul Jones as bald-headed. And, of course, he loses his stuff. He's like, I don't want to ever see that again. How dare you put that in you? <laughs> yeah, Boogie brought it out and gave it to David Crockett. And then, of course, David Crockett produces it for Jimmy during their interview segment. And he just loses his stuff. And, you know. <laughs> and if you think about it, think about the guys he's, he's managed at this point. Abdul the Butcher, bald-headed. At that point, J- uh, uh, superstar Billy Graham was bald-headed. Uh, Barbarian has just the mohawk. T.O. Johan has just a mohawk. Uh, 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 Baron Von Raschke, bald-headed. You see in a pattern here? <laughs> you know, this is, this is brilliant. You know, and the only two guys that had hair were him and him and, and Watley. And the like I said Watley lost his hair. And then the the screw job finish we were talking about, where then then Boogie lost his. And once again, to, to, this is not a, this is not about Boogie, but oh my goodness, afterwards to see this dejected Boogie Woogie man, you know. Just on his knees and tears in the ring, sweeping up what's left of his hair after he's got his hair cut. And then Paul Jones, like, you know, the next week, just gloating on television with a plastic bag with some of the hair in it. Just, I mean, this is just heel 101 stuff, man. <laughs> well, I remember Brian and Vinny talking about when that happened. 
because obviously Boogie was shocked that he lost and he realized he'd been screwed. But he took and, it like a man. Yeah, and there's that, that shock and disbelief, and then he's like, okay, I'm a man of my word. Uh, and then, then just as the hair is being shaved off of him, he's like simmering, and then finally by the time it's over, it's just like, oh, hell's coming. <laughs> you know? Right, right, right. And it's, as they're shaving his head, the way Boogie's body language, because he was so good at this, went from proud man to almost like, I hate to use this this you know this metaphysical term, almost like his soul had been sucked out, like all his you know, and and then the next week on TV, oh he was back again, you know, and and it was it was I love the way they made this feud last for so long because so many three guys wound up losing their hair by the time this angle was over. First it was Pez, then it was Boogie, and then eventually Paul Jones did lose his hair, uh, you know, and I think it was in a, like a dog collar match or a chain match or something where it was a gimmick match. Where he yeah, finally did uh, Big beat. Mama was involved, I believe. Yes, who of course was Ron Garvin in drag, but that's another story for another time. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, so that was Miss Atlanta Lively. Big Mama was Boogie's her his street lady, which I'm I'm using that term in mixed company as best I can. I'll just leave it at that. But uh, <laughs> she did have some bodacious tatas, as they say. But anyway, uh, Paul was around that time was when Paul switched his look from the tuxedos to a riding crop. And like the jopper pants and riding boots and a khaki safari shirt and grew the grew like the the, the uh, toothbrush mustache. So right. yes, he did look a little bit like Hitler. And believe me, I'm pretty sure that was on purpose. I mean, you talk about that wouldn't fly today, but that's just great. That's heel 101 again. I mm-hmm. mean, Paul got all this crap from from modern fans. He was your classic 70s 80s territorial heel. He was not afraid to get booed. He was not afraid for people to slash his tires, and he would do it and say it and go out there. and And he had a passion about his men. You hear, you heard it in the promo that you played at the top. Other than Paul Heyman, name anybody that cuts promos with that kind of passion nowadays. Nobody. Right. Right. So I think. I mean, it's. I think with uh, the the best way I can describe uh, Paul Jones a, as a heel is about the only thing he's missing is uh, twirling his mustache, having a top hat, and then a railroad track to tie, tie the dance of his dress down to. <laughs> right, right. Now, he would, that whole picture thing you talk about, that was hilarious. When he finally did get his head shaved, like a great heel, instead of uh, instead of hiding and cowering in defeat, he just shows up on television the next week with like a cowboy hat on, like a Stetson. Mm-hmm. And, 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 of course, you know, that was always lead to the spot where the baby face would yank the hat off of him when he wasn't paying attention at ringside. And he'd lose his stuff because his bald head had been exposed. And just, I mean, just classic wrestling 101. The kind of stuff that is why I love wrestling. It's, it's, it's simple storytelling. Good guys versus bad guys. I love it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So it was around 1989 that he left what was then now uh, called WCW, I believe. I think that they'd officially... Right gone with the name wcw at least the tv show had yeah this had, yeah this is this is post turner buyout and a right. lot of those old crockett's you know uh standbys were gone you know they just they didn't want to work for ted turner and he was one of them paul was definitely one of them and i think you talked about it uh, earlier on but he went on to go to uh, what, what was the promotion i think you said he co-owned it yeah he did um we were talking about this off mic uh Around the same, around this time, right before Smoky Mountain started, which would be like 91, so we're talking 89, 90, that area, uh, him and a, a referee slash enhancement guy from the Crockett's named Gene Ligon and Ivan Koloff and um, uh, Ricky Steamboat all invested in a promotion that they named South Atlantic Pro Wrestling. And South Atlantic Pro essentially was trying to fill the gap in the old Crockett territory 
for the small towns and buildings and TV stations that weren't being served by Turner now that they had bought it out, you know? Uh, in fact, their television was syndicated on a lot of the same stations that Crockett Television had been syndicated on throughout the, the Carolinas and Virginia. They even got Bob Cottle, you know, the legendary Bob Cottle, who was the longtime lead announcer, play-by-play guy for Crockett's, to be their announcer. Uh, and Paul Jones, I believe, was the, was uh, briefly the uh, the champion for a time at the, at the start of the promotion. Yes, that's correct. But after a while, he kind of assumed an off-screen role. But South Atlantic Pro was where my trainer, Bubba Kirk, really got his first start. I mean, he had worked independence in and around you know South Carolina and had done some enhancement stuff for Vince McMahon through Mula. But this was his first territory, you know. Um, and there were a lot of people that uh, worked there that got their break in South Atlantic Pro that fans of today will have heard of, like uh, a guy named Vince Torelli who would morph into Ken Shamrock. Uh, mm-hmm. The Nasty Boys were one of the first big heel tag teams they had. Curtis Thompson, who went on to become Firebreaker Chip in WCW, was one of the worst gimmicks of all time there. U.S. male. He was a wrestling mailman, <laughs> but he got his start there. Uh, uh, Chris Chavis, who would eventually become Tatanka. Chris Chavis. Chavis. Yeah. Yeah, Chris, yeah, Chris is, was a Lumbee Indian from, from Pembroke, North Carolina. Yeah, he was. they got his start there. Uh, I'm trying to think of some other guys. They used a mix of young guys like that with established older stars from the Crockett days, like Paul Jones, like Ricky Steamboat, like Ivan Koloff. Um, uh, Sean Royal uh, was there, for, uh, one half of the new breed, and would have become Total Destruction and Wild, one half of Total Destruction Wild Side. So they had some named guys there, you know, guys when they were young. Um, I loved South Atlantic uh, because it was, as much as I liked WCW, it still reminded me of what I, what I had watched in the early 80s. You know, it had the same production values, the same look. It had the same lead announcer. It had a lot of the same stars. And they were wrestling in the, in the high school gyms and in the smaller buildings here in the Carolinas that, that the Crockett's had done for years. Um, and I don't think that, I think that went on for about four or five years. I think it was until they finally went under. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of years. Uh, one more name to add to that list of people that got their start in, uh, in, in that territory was, uh, Rob Van Dam. Yes, that's right. I forgot. Rob did too. That's right. I forgot about that. Um, it was, I think it was around this time was when I started really getting smart to the business and start, I was meeting and talking to wrestlers. Um, Paul was respected by a lot of those guys for what he did and his abilities in the ring, but he kind of had a, he kind of had a, um, I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but he had, he had a reputation to being a stooge to the office. I don't know if he's a stooge. He was just like Gorilla Monsoon and some of these other guys that had bought into the territory. I think, you know, Paul had some money invested in Crockett promotions. And so, you know, I, I, I probably would have hated him when I was a wrestler, but now that I look back, I respect him because he was just trying to protect the business, you know? Um, I mean, it is what it is, right? It, it, it That's the politics of wrestling, and that's that's never going to go away. So um, it, it's it's really easy to hate your boss when he's helping sign your paychecks, isn't it? <laughs> right. But um, when you look back, you're like, well, I'm thankful he was around because I wouldn't have eaten those years if he wasn't signing those paychecks. So around that time, uh, Paul Jones does finally hang up the tights, retires from wrestling, and he opened a uh, auto body shop. Mm-hmm. Wonder if the Briscoes helped him do that. Right. <laughs> Gave yeah. him some advice. Yeah, I'm not uh, not sure think, what it is about uh, retiring from wrestling and getting into car mechanics, but uh, auto body shops and 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 and, and gyms. Those seem to be the two <laughs> real estate's another big one that they get into. You know, um, yeah, but I think that he eventually shut down that shop there in the Charlotte area and relocated to Atlanta and opened up a shop down there too. And I believe that's where he was living when he passed away earlier this week. Yeah, yeah. According to Wikipedia, it just says that he passed away in his home in Atlanta. So. Uh, no cause of death given yet. 
Yeah, I'd only met Paul a couple of times. Like I said, it was not a friend of mine, but he was really close with Ivan Koloff. And you, you know, our listeners know, and you know that me and Ivan were quite close. So, um, that was, you know, how I, how I kind of knew Paul was through Ivan. I, I never, I always thought Paul was very nice to me, very, uh, you know, very professional. We talked a little bit about the business, not a whole lot, more just guy talk, you know. Um, he liked to fish. We talked a little bit about fishing, uh, guy stuff, you know. Uh, I did tell him I was a mark for him when I was a kid, and I loved the Indian death lock, which kind of put a smile on his face, which always makes you, you happy as a, as, a, as a young wrestler telling an old vet that, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's um, I don't know much about his later life, just that, you know, he, he just, like I said, I only met him through Ivan, and, and I, I wasn't. It was cool. I was meeting one of the guys I watched on TV growing up. You know, it's it's Boogie speaks highly of him. You know, Jimmy loves him. I mean, they made a lot of money together for about a what a three or four year run there. We were just talking about. Right, right, absolutely. I mean, I mean, they were not on top. It was always Dusty and Flair, but there were a lot of times they were the semi main event, so they helped sell some of those houses. You know, that was definitely a major part of the of the Crockett package back in the day. And I don't think we need to tell any of our listeners the kind of money the Crockets were making from about eighty four to about eighty nine. They were they were rolling in the dough. Well, I think we'll wind up the conversation here and wind up this volume of Classic Wrestling Memories. I'm going to run down the championships and accomplishments that Paul Jones earned as per Wikipedia. So, uh, big-time promotions. He was a big-time television champion once. Uh, honoree at Cauliflower Alley Club, which is no small accomplishment. Nope. Uh, championship Wrestling from Florida. Uh, NWA Brass Knuckles Championship, Florida version. NWA Florida Heavyweight Championship four times. NWA... Florida Television Championship two times, NWA Southern Heavyweight Championship. I think that's the championship you were talking about uh, earlier when we were talking about uh, Florida. Yep, yep. Uh, Georgia Championship Wrestling is a one-time NWA Georgia Heavyweight Champion. Uh, Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling under the Crockett's. Six-time NWA Atlantic Coast Tag Team Championship, uh, which was also apparently the NWA Mid-Atlantic Tag Team Championship. They have morphed um, into the Mid-Atlantic Tag Team Championships, correct? Yeah. Uh, three times with Ricky Steamboat, once with Nelson Royal, once with Tiger Conway Jr., and once with Bob Bruggers. Uh, Who also was in the plane wreck and, and never wrestled again due to the injuries. Yeah, with, and, and, with I believe, and yeah and I believe Austin Idol was also in that crash, too, right? No, no, Austin was in the same plane crash that, that killed Bobby Shea and, and, and knocked Gary Hart out of every in-ring competitor. That was in, in Florida. Okay. They're around the same time. They're around the same time. The, fl- okay. the that that the one you're thinking of was Johnny Valentine crippled him. He never wrestled again. Bob Bruggers, he never wrestled again. The pilot passed away. David Crockett, Ric Flair, of course, broke Rick's back, and Tim Woods, Mister Wrestling. That was who was in that plane. Sorry, I, I digress. Back, back to Paul's accomplishments. Uh, NWA Mid Atlantic Heavyweight Championship three times. Uh, Five time NWA Mid Atlantic Television Champion, which I believe also morphed into the NWA Television Championship. Yeah, the world television title. Three-time NWA United States Heavyweight Champion, which again morphed into the WWE version. And the Mid-Atlantic NWA World Tag Team Championship, he won it six times. Once with Ricky Steamboat, twice with Mask Superstar, twice with Baron Von Raschke, and once with Wahoo McDaniel. Uh, and NWA Hollywood Wrestling in, in California, one-time NWA America's Tag Team Champion with Nelson Royal. Uh, Pacific Northwest Wrestling, now that would be uh, Oregon? Dot. Yeah, Portland, Don Owen, and yeah. Hollywood would be the LaBelle brothers out of L.A. Two-time NWA Pacific Northwest heavyweight champion and a one-time NWA Pacific Northwest tag team champion, although it, Wikipedia does not list his partner. PWI, the fans voted him PWA tag team of the year with Ricky Steamboat. And of South Atlantic Pro Wrestling, of course, he was the one-time South Atlantic Pro Wrestling heavyweight champion 
And then in the Wrestling Observer Newsletter in 1986, he was voted worst manager. Which, like we said with Brian Alvarez, that uh, you know, hindsight being 2020 wasn't really that bad. <laughs> right. But you have yeah. to remember, in 1986, his competition was Jim Cornette and Bobby Bobby Heenan, and uh, you know, guys like that, Paul Ellering. So yeah, I think JJ's in there stiff, too. Yeah, JJ, he had some stiff competition. You know, if, uh, if you look on a national scale, uh, you know, uh, who else was was did Vince have at the time? You know, so yeah, Freddie Blassie. You know, it was there were other other managers. I think in hindsight, you look back and realize that Paul Jones was not that bad a manager. Um, like I said, he was an effectively, he was an effective terror. He was the prototype seventies, eighty territorial guy, you know? Um, and, and as you list his accomplishments, you can see he spent most of his time here down South. Um, did not go up to Minneapolis, the AWA, did not go up and work for Vince, but still had a long, successful career where he made good money, uh, in wrestling. Yeah, we didn't really talk over. We, we didn't really talk it much, but he did spend uh, some time up in Canada. Right, right. But I think a lot of those things, like the, the Hollywood run, the, the the Pacific Northwest, those are probably just you know being lent out by the Crockett's or by Eddie Graham because that happened back then. I think he considered himself a Southern based guy, and he stayed here most of his career. Uh, he's fondly remembered by fans of of my era and the era before my me. Um, he he's he's never Paul is never going to be on that list with guys like Bruno. He's just right. not. He d- he didn't have that kind of national exposure. But from a regional standpoint, Paul was a star everywhere he went. He won titles everywhere he went. He managed some of the some of the top heels, uh, maybe not the top of the card, but some of the you know top mid card heels uh, for the last part of his career. There's a lot to be uh, respected there and appreciated. Yeah, I think you can compare him to a lot of the guys that he did manage later in his career, guys like Pez Watley or Baron von Rasch, guys like that. Because yeah. you know, Pez Watley, I don't think, ever truly got uh, a run on a national level. I mean, when he was on national TV, he was enhancement talent for, for Vince. Right. And granted, it was at the end of his career and he wasn't what he was, but he managed superstar Billy Graham, who's one of the biggest stars ever in this business. He managed Abdul the Butcher, who was a WWE Hall of Famer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he you know he managed uh, the barbarian who his is universally regarded as one of the legitimate toughest guys in wrestling in the last what thirty years probably him and Ming. So mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it isn't like he didn't he, he he tagged with guys like Ricky Steamboat and Bill Eady, these guys that are you know huge national stars. So he affected you know a lot of people. Uh, some of that's being in the right place at the right time. He was in the Carolinas when it was you know at its zenith. Um, but the, you know, Paul to me is one of those guys that I I'm so thankful for because they're the ones that paved that road that I got to walk down a few years later, and I I pray that I only did my job to pave a little bit of that road for the guys that come after me because that's kind of how the wrestling business is supposed to work. Um, so I my hats off from my bald head to the bald headed geek. I I thank you for turning mm-hmm. me into a fan. I thank you for uh. You know, incur, you know, uh, inspiring me to go down that crazy road I went down for 15 years, and my life would be very different. So uh, condolences to your family, and uh, I didn't know you. I only met you a few times, but I thank you very much for that, that, that inspiration you gave me when I was a young boy needing an escape from the real world. All right, with that, that's going to wrap up this volume of Classic Wrestling Memories, and we're, we're going to be back soon. we got a lot of stuff lined up, a lot of fun stuff to talk about in the future. Once again, the website is ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. We, we do have a Facebook comment section in there. Uh, and the main Facebook page is A1-Wrestling.com. Uh, and the forum, if you want to talk to us uh, in a forum, that is actually at BehindTheSquaredCircle.com.
twitter.com. Uh, the Twitter is TWBP Show. That's for the Wrestling Brethren podcast show. And my geeky side is also on Twitter at Geekville Radio. And Train, if people want to hit you up uh, to talk Paul Jones or Bruno Sammartino or anything wrestling or anything at all, where can they find you? That I am always able to be found on Twitter at CrazyTrain underscore JB. I look forward to hearing from all y'all. I, I don't hear enough from you. I want to know what you guys want us to talk about. And if I got my facts wrong, please let me know. I know I'm not perfect. As the saying goes, a wise man welcomes being corrected. Yes. I don't know if I'm wise, but I don't, I don't mind it. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. With that, we are going to end this session of Classic Wrestling Memories. We will be back sooner than you know it with another great episode of Classic Wrestling Memories. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the Wrestling Brethren podcast family and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. The views expressed by the hosts and or guests are purely their own and do not reflect the opinions of ClassicWrestlingMemories.com, BehindTheSquaredCircle.com, the Wrestling Brethren Network, or any affiliates. Some media used by Classic Wrestling Memories may be the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved. All rights reserved.